Welcome to 900 Ackland Avenue. This is the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. What follows is the service from July 17th, 2022. Thank you and God bless. We'll get started whenever Brian Thornton's ready. We're going to start with a reading from Luke 10, beginning in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Let's pray together. Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, you know our necessities before we ask, and our ignorance in asking. Have compassion on our weakness and merciful and mercifully give us those things which for our unworthiness we dare not or for our blindness we cannot ask we pray this morning that you bless this gathering together we are so grateful that we can be here and we pray that you are with those that we are aware of who who are sick we pray for ray this morning we pray for marion and shelly brett pam and debbie we pray for Jane, we pray for Julia, we pray for Ed. Pray for, we have continued prayers for Christy and Chuck, and we pray for our missionaries in, in Nashville and around the world. We pray that you will be with us this morning as we listen to your word and praise your name. And we pray that we will we'll be encouraged in such a way that we can take this with us throughout the week. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. <coughs> Seven hundred twenty-four. Seven twenty-four. The theme is all to him I owe. We give thee but thy own. Thank you. 
become distracted by the world and, and things uh, tempt us into trusting in these other things for our, our strength and our power. Lord, uh, draw us back and remind us that you have all things under your control. You're working them out to a great end and the only trust we need is, is you, Father. Lord, be with those who are rejoicing today. Please continue to encourage their spirits and let them know the source from whence their joy comes. And Father, for those in sorrow today, we, we pray that you would help them. We pray that you would be with Danny Ray's family as they mourn a loved one. And all the people who are, are in sorrow or struggle, Father, just be with them and give them your hope and encouragement. Those who are going through hard times, be a rock always, Father. Thank you that we can be like that flourishing olive tree that, that draws its sustenance for you. For you are the God of all life. And it's in your name, in Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen. Supplement <clears throat> book number three.
Mark uh, 427. <coughs> and turn a few pages back to 422. Majestic sweetness is in front of Needs to be a good thorough cleanup, right? 
Um, encampments are not anybody's first choice. We know that they are not the solution. Um, but when you, but when, when you do not have secure and stable housing, like most of us are blessed to have, um, an encampment can be a sense of community. So to the extent that we can help people um, um, be a part of cleaning up their community, that's a really good thing. You might know that on July 1, um, any kind of sleeping on a public place became a felony. That's a state law. Um, we know that um, closing encampments does not solve homelessness. We know that arresting people does not solve homelessness. The only thing that really solves homelessness is affordable housing. And in this city, we just don't have enough. We do not have enough affordable housing. And so, again, we know that um, it's unusual, maybe, for the church to be asking you to come along with something that is supporting an illegal activity. But again, we believe that people have a right to exist and that this is a way that we can show um, love and care. I'm wearing my open table shirt today. Housing, <laughs> healing, and hope. Um, long term, we have got to be a part of housing, housing solutions. Um, and in the short term, and hopefully always, we'll be a part of Healing and Hope. So I have some forms. Um, it's an outside event, obviously, so you don't have to wear masks. Open Table will provide gloves, and we'll have lots of hand sanitizer and that kind of stuff, trash bags, all that good stuff. Um, here's a form that you do need to fill out because they uh, want to make sure that all the volunteers have um, a liability waiver signed and also that you're vaccinated. So, um, this is for high school and up. High school and up, yeah. So, high school and up, if you wanna participate, grab a form from me, and um, then you can send me a picture later of your vaccination card, okay? And you can give me the form back. Um, any questions before I put down? August 6th, is that first Saturday in August from like 10 to 12? Oh, thanks. Thank you, Sabrina. As Sabrina said, uh, that law went into effect July 1st, and that's caused uh, quite a ripple in the unhoused community. So you might have seen uh, more of a presence uh, of the unhoused on our property. So I want you to know that we're, um, we're trying to walk alongside them in, in wise and compassionate ways. It's just kind of a ripple. And as she said, none of us believe camping is a long-term solution, or we don't want to see more camps in the city, but we want to see a solution and not just act like it doesn't exist. So we appreciate uh, your support and all your thoughts and, and your action on that. Grab your bulletin and we're gonna be looking at Ephesians chapter, uh, Ephesians, Esther. Started with an E, right? Started with an E. We're gonna be looking at Esther chapter four in just a second. This is our third uh, week on Esther. We're gonna wrap it up next week. And I'd like to set it up this way. I've always been inspired uh, by the, the life and the works of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a German pastor in the uh, 1920s, 1930s, on into the early 1940s, who did a lot um, to try to resist the growth of Nazism and to try to be a purifying uh, influence in the Christian movement in Germany. Um, and also, even up to the point, even though he was a pacifist and being involved with a group of people that, that tried to assassinate uh, Hitler, you might be familiar with the Valkyrie movie that came out some years ago. He was kind of in the proximity of, of, of some of those folks. But there's a key moment in Bonhoeffer's life that, that I always go back to. And this is the early 1930s when he had spent a year over in the United States in New York City. 
studying at, at Union Seminary. And he has these job offers to stay in the States. Already, the writing's on the wall in Europe. Like, so many people know the direction Europe is going. Already, people are getting out of Germany, getting out of Europe. There are more people on the boats coming to the States than on the boats going back to Europe, right? And he contemplates, should I stay here in the United States in a position of safety, or should I go back to Germany knowing that if I go back to Germany, I don't know what awaits me, and everything might fall apart. And ultimately, he decides to go back to Germany. He has a teaching position. He ends up losing his teaching position because he's joined the resistance, what they call the Confessing Church, which was standing against Hitler as opposed to the established uh, German church. He began a secret seminary for ministers, and then ultimately, through his job, was kind of tangentially related to the plot against Hitler. In 1943, he's arrested. He spends two years in concentration camps, and then in April of 1945, he's executed just days before the Allies got there and would have freed him. And as it turned out, he knew that getting on that boat to leave safety and going back to risk was probably going to be the most significant thing of his life. And it was. He never got married and had a family because of it. Um, he never really got to be a working pastor out in the community, out in the open. He lost his teaching position and ultimately he lost his life. Because there was something he decided that was worth the risk you see, Bonhoeffer understood that the gospel is not just a theory, it's not just a doctrine, it's not just a worldview, but the gospel, the belief that the crucified Jesus is the risen Lord, is a lifestyle. And if we believe the gospel, then we demonstrate that by obeying the gospel. And to obey the gospel is to submit to your own crucifixion in order that life may come. As Jesus himself said, those who want to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. In so many ways, that's the story of Esther. Two weeks ago, we began the story. This is the early 5th century B.C. She would roughly be a contemporary of people like uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, a little bit after Jeremiah, that time. Um, as you know, the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem. They had taken them back to Babylon, but then Persia came and conquered Babylon. So this is the time of the Persians after the Babylonians, and they are in exile. Esther is born in exile. She dies in exile. As far as we know, she never got to go back home. Spends her whole life a stranger in a strange land. King Xerxes of Persia was a very powerful emperor, had great wealth to the point that he could throw a party for six months. The climax of the party, out of weeks of drinking and partying with all of his buddies, he asked his queen, Vashti, to come present herself. This is a very objectifying type of scenario, and she said, I'm not going to do it. And the consequence was she was expelled as queen. But then they circled up and said, if word gets out, all of our wives are going to pull this stuff, right? So we have to pass a law that wives have to do whatever their husbands tell them to do. We saw in that story that individual sexism can often lead to systemic sexism. As the story moves on, we see that Xerxes holds a national search, empire-wide search to find a new queen. 
Esther is selected, but on the advice of her cousin, it was kind of like her pseudo-father. She was an orphan, adopted father. Mordecai says, don't tell him you're a Jew. Let's, let's hold this card for now, right? We'll, we'll play it maybe later, but hold it for now. So she becomes queen, but they don't know her identity. Shortly after this time, Mordecai, here's a plot that they're going to, a couple of guys that work for Xerxes are going to assassinate him. And he gets word to Esther, who tells him they discover the plot, and then they kill the guys that were going to kill Xerxes. You may ask, what was done to honor Mordecai? At this point in the story, nothing. Nothing is done to honor Mordecai. But there's a vacuum in the power structure. Xerxes needs to promote someone, so he promotes Haman. And Haman goes riding around in a chariot, expecting everyone to kneel down to him and bow to him. And everyone does, except for Mordecai. And Haman is incensed. Even though the only reason he got his position was because Mordecai had spoken out about the assassination plot. It goes right over his head. Because scripture says he's an Aga guy, they hearken back to the Canaanites. Mordecai is a Jew. It goes back to the Israelites. These people groups have not liked each other for a long time. And he's incensed that Mordecai has done this. He not only wants to kill Mordecai, but he goes to Xerxes and says, I want to pass a law that at a future date we kill all the Jews. And as we talked about last week, so often individual prejudice, individual racism leads to systemic prejudice and systemic racism. And so Xerxes, it's always right over his head. We always see him kind of drinking and partying and not thinking things through. He has signed a law that on a future date, all the Jews will be exterminated and all the empire of Persia. And the last verse of chapter 3 says, everyone in Susa is like, what just happened? And chapter 4 picks up with that story. So if you would stand with me for the reading, we're going to read Esther chapter 4, 14 verses. If you would join with me in the bold section, feel free. And this picks up with Mordecai right after he has heard the law has been passed. But you'll notice Esther hasn't heard yet. Okay? Esther chapter 4, 1 through 14. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, fasting, weeping, wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathok, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathok went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials, people of the royal provinces, know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courts without being summoned, 
The king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer together. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Thank you. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's a it's an overwhelming story if we think about it. And last week I gave so many examples to the point where it's just like, stop, we don't need any more examples of prejudice and racism and genocide and heartache in our world. What we talked about last week, before we can ask the question, what are we to do? We have to have eyes to see and to understand that the world is not as God creates a being, and yet there's a Jesus involved with this world that is making all things new through the power of the Spirit. It's overwhelming, specifically in our time, the Internet age, the globalist age, where we are aware of more human suffering than perhaps any group of humans that have ever been on the planet. There's just so much, and there can be a tendency to just want to zone out or to become overwhelmed or throw up our hands and say, what can we do? But we need to be the type of people that look, that see, that truly understand. Of course, then the question comes, and we see this in today's story, what do you do? What do you do when you see, when you see how much evil is really in this world? And notice Mordecai's response, because he shows us the way in this. What Mordecai does is he grieves. He allows himself to be sad. And I want you all to know that based on what we find in the scriptures, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be troubled. It's okay to look around. It's, it's not a lack of trust to be sad sometimes. To look around and see that all that goes on in our world. The biblical word for this is lament. In their culture back then, they would, they would tear their clothes, sackcloth and ashes. It was a sign of their lament. You may remember two years ago, in the summer 2020, we were meeting outside. We spent many weeks talking about lament, biblical lament, passages from the Psalms like, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as modern people, we struggle with that level of transparency and honesty. If Stina had just read that as her prayer this morning, it would have been like, man, that was a little over the top, right? And yet that's how people talked in the Bible. That's how Mordecai is acting here. He's, 
He's grieving. And there are different layers of lament. Some of our laments are just between us and God. Some of our laments are with our Christian brothers and sisters, our families. But some of our laments are so intense and they're so noteworthy because they involve things on a public square. Some of our laments become public. Notice what Mordecai does. He does not go to the privacy of his own home and rip his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. He goes out in public. All the way to the limit of where he says, looking like that, you can't pass this line. <laughs> but he goes all the way up to that line, right? And in a very public fashion, he tears his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes. And what does he do? He cries out in public. Almost to the point that Esther's like, uh-oh, I'm embarrassed by my cousin. What's going on? Okay? What's going on here? This is Mordecai's sit-in. This is Mordecai's hunger strike. This is Mordecai's protest. And he goes out and he makes his lament very, very public. What can we learn from that? There is a time to go public with our discontent about the state of the world. But I want us to notice something. As far as we know, based on this reading, it's the only time Mordecai does this. Mordecai waits for great evil. He was already in exile, let's be clear. But yet he waits for the genocide. He waits for the great evil to take his stand and to do the public lament, to do the public protest. I think we need to be very wise about when we do this type of thing. Specifically because we live in a world of constant outrage, which what happens sometimes is there's just noise. And all the noise just washes each other out. And it becomes almost like the old story of the boy crying wolf or something. Every time I turn on the news, it's breaking news. Every single time. To the point is, when I see the headline breaking news, I'm no longer interested. Because it's always breaking news. Every election we're told, this is the most important election in our nation's history. <laughs> I mean, I've been told that since 1992. <laughs> right? Like... Everything is the biggest thing. And what we can do is we can just zone out. Here's what we need to do. We have to be wise and pick our spots. You know, what we saw in 2020 and a lot of the protests that happened in 2020, I really think they made a difference because a lot of things that were happening were so crystal clear. Spots were picked in such a decisive way. But I don't think we go out and protest every day because then I just think, it blends in. It just becomes noise at some point. I am by no means an expert on this. This is just what people who are far wiser than me have showed me and talked to me about. Mordecai waits for this moment. He stages a protest lament, and it works. If we ever wonder, can a protest do anything? It does here. Because Esther notices, and she sends... Her servant to him is like, you got to ask him what's going on. <laughs> and he tells her. He's like, send her a copy of this. It's written down. She needs to go and beg for mercy. Today, Esther, not tomorrow. Today, you need to go beg for mercy. And I love the back and forth here. Because she's like, Psst. you ever heard of King? Have you ever heard of Queen Vashti? <laughs> the last queen pulled this type of thing. And it didn't work out for her. 
We've seen this story before. Queen Vassai was told to do something. She didn't do it. It's roughly the same thing to go do something that you haven't been asked to do. And Esther's like, I know how this story ends. In fact, there's a law that if a man or woman goes unsummoned to the king and he doesn't raise his golden scepter, he kills them. She's basically like, because you're asking me to risk my life. By the way, this is another reminder about so many of the relationships we see in the Bible are not like modern relationships, right? When was the last time she saw her husband? It's been 30 days, okay? This is a very different type. This is not like the marriages we have, okay? This is a very different type of thing going on here with Esther. I want to say that. So she says, I just don't know that I can do this. And Mordecai has this amazing response back to her. And I've been telling you guys, the sermon series that, that I listened to that kind of inspired me to spend some time with this by a, a preacher in the D.C. area, the BDN of Wiley. He says that at this point, he likes to imagine that Mordecai calls Esther Hadassah, her Jewish name. Because this is the point where we're, we're getting real at this point. We're getting desperate. We're taking it to a different level. Not going to call you Esther. I mean, he matches this. We don't know this for certain, but we're not going to use Persian names anymore. Like we're Jew to Jew. We're going to have this conversation. And you know when you spend time with your family, when you spend time with your loved ones, and they call you that pet, that pet name or that nickname that they called you growing up, that they called you in high school. I mean, I know when I run into somebody that looks at me and says, Joe Paul? <laughs> I listen in a different way because if they call me Joe Paul and not JP, it locates a specific time and I listen. And Mordecai talks to her, talks to Hadassah at this point with a type of tenderness and a type of compassion, but also a type of conviction. He says, first of all, you need to know this. Just because you're queen and you're up in that palace and you're up in that royal position, don't think you're going to be safe. Like, if this happens, they're going to find out you're Jewish. And you're going to die. I'm going to die. Our family's going to die. And one of the things we learned from this is evil doesn't just affect a select few. It ultimately affects everyone, right? Did we not see that the last few years in the global economy? That when something happens in one part, when they close a factory in a different part of the world, guess what? It ends up affecting us, right? How many times have we used the phrase supply chain <laughs> the last few years? We are connected as humanity. As many have said, injustice somewhere becomes injustice everywhere. We're connected. As we ended the message last week, I was quoting Martin Moeller, well-known German Christian, who talks about, I didn't speak up for this group of people, I didn't speak up for this group of people, I didn't speak up for this group of people, and then they came for me. There was no one left to speak for me. Mordecai saying, Esther, you're not, do not be disillusioned into thinking, boy, that's tough on them. Glad I'm safe. Evil will come for all of us. But then there's this hope and there's this trust. The next thing he says, if you don't do this, God will just find someone else. I mean, you'll die. Not going to work out for you. 
But God will find someone else. God, Esther, be clear. God's not depending on you to pull this off. God, and this is very humbling for us, God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need us. God will always find someone else. You know, it's, it's, it's the sports cliche. Next man up. Next woman up. We remember the story of Elijah. He's like, God, I'm the only one left. And he's like, you're not the only one left. I have 7,000. And by the way, you're fired. I want you to go anoint Elisha. God does not depend on us. And, and the backdrop of this, and this is what Mordecai understands and Esther comes to understand. We've got to see the big picture, folks. God wins. Good wins. Justice wins. Hope wins. Maybe not in the moment, but in the end. In the big picture. I've been asked a lot, J.D., how do you interpret the book of Revelation? <laughs> what does Revelation mean? And I always say, I'm not entirely sure. But I know this much. We win in the end. <laughs> God wins in the end. And God have mercy. We're part of that victory, right? We need to be people that are convinced of the victory. Christians of all people should be the least people that are cynical or defeatist or in despair. We need to be very realistic about evil, but we need to be people of hope. Because we're going to win. And it's with that confidence that the victory is on our side, not because we've earned it, but because of the grace of God, that then Esther can go. And then the great phrase that we always think of in this passage, who knows that you have come to such a royal position for such a time as this. And so much is made of that because this is the book of the Bible where God is not mentioned, and yet we see this invoking of God's providence, that God is moving behind the scenes, and maybe you came to, maybe this is your moment. The two weeks ago, we contrasted the Vashti posture, which is, today's the day, and this is the hill I'm going to die on, and the Esther posture, today's not the day, I'm not going to tell them I'm a Jew yet, but I'm open to the fact that that day may come. And most of us live our lives with an Esther posture. Today, this is not the hill I'm going to die on, but that day's coming. But it finally gets to the point where we all have a vast time moment. <laughs> and we say, is this the time that came? Think about all the blessings you've been given. The positions you've been given. The advantages socially that you were born into or that were given to you at different times. Your money, your career, your success, your relationships. And then I want you to imagine, it's like we're playing Monopoly or some game, and you have pretend money or tokens or something. You, you've, been, you've been given all that. All your position, all your power, all your stuff. What are you going to spend that on? What are you going to spend that? That capital, that social capital that you acquired, all your advantages, your position... Are you just going to die never having spent it? Or are you going to get to a moment and say, I've been saving up. Kids, some of you have been working summer jobs. You've been saving up money. You've been getting excited for that thing you're going to spend it on. And all of us have been given position. Will we hoard that position? Will we die having never spent it? Or will we get to a moment that we're like, I saved it up for this moment and I'm cashing it in. 
I'm cashing it all in for this. I'm willing to give it up. It was some years ago, Beth and I were in D.C. We were visiting some friends. I think it was around the year 2005. And we were touring the National Cathedral. And there were, out in the lobby, there were just kind of inspirational quotes kind of all over the place. And I'll never forget, there was this Chinese proverb that said, I've known my whole life that this day would come. But yesterday, I didn't know it would be today. And I thought that was the most beautiful thing. It's always stuck with me. I think deep down, all of us know we're going to have a big stand at some point in our life. But we have to live a life of preparedness because we don't know when it's going to come. But when it's going to come, are you going to be ready? Just suddenly, out of nowhere, you're like, man, I guess today's the day, right? It's like a firefighter waiting around on call. But they could be sitting at the firehouse like, man, we haven't had a fire in two weeks. Might as well just go home. I guess there aren't fires anymore, right? But it's right when they all go home that we probably need them, right? Do we live a life of being prepared for that moment? So Esther's response is, Mordecai, I'm going to fast with you. I think that was the right idea. And I want everybody to fast with me for three days, and then I'm going to go, and if I perish, I perish. Don't overlook the power of fasting. It's similar to Jesus when he's out in the wilderness. Fasting does not make you weak. When Jesus fasted for 40 days, he didn't, he didn't do it to say, now I can be Satan with one hand tied behind my back. He said, no, I'm fasting for 40 days to become stronger. Esther knows that by fasting for three days, she will be able to get the spiritual strength to do what she doesn't think she can do. She knows fasting is the way to do it. Can you imagine... Anything more exciting than somebody in this room texting you, calling you, and saying, hey, can you fast for me tomorrow? I think my fast time moment has come. Can you imagine how great that would be? I would love to get that text. Not everybody the same day, okay, because then I'll be like, what's going on? Okay, but like, uh, how exciting would that be? JP, can you fast for me this Tuesday? I think this is my vast, I think this is the hill that I'm going to die on. And if I perish, I perish. Do we see all the Christ-like imagery in this? Esther is the Christ figure. Notice that it's fasting for three days. Every time we think of three days, right? As Christians, we think of the three days, parts of three days in the tomb. Notice that she's risking her life to save the lives of others. That is what Christ did. Notice she says, if I perish, I perish. And notice how similar that is to what Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. This is Esther's Garden of Gethsemane moment. She is contemplating and considering her own crucifixion where she says, I'm willing to give up my position to do this. This is the time to be crucified because I know as bad as crucifixion is, as bad as sacrifice is, as bad as humility is, it's only the humble that are ultimately lifted up. It's only those who sacrifice that find the reward on the only other side. And it's only those that allow themselves to be crucified that find resurrection. I want to end with two illustrations and then leave the question for us all. 
I chose to do a political illustration, and I know that politics can get dicey and politics can go a lot of different directions, and I know we have, may have various political opinions in this room. But I tell this story because what I want you to see is that the politician is willing to give up their position for this. And that's the point of the story that I really want to focus on, okay? Currently, they've been having the January 6th hearings. And if you followed any of that, you know that there are only two Republicans on the January 6th committee. There's, there's Liz Cheney, she's from Wyoming, and there's Adam Kinzinger from Illinois. And they're both Christians. And they both decided that we believe what happened on January 6th needs to be investigated. And they have taken so much hostility from many people in, uh, you might say, their base for that decision to the point that neither one of them are even running for election because it's a waste of money. They his district in Illinois and her district in, uh, in Wyoming. There's no chance of winning. And they knew that very early on in making the decision. So they basically said, this is the hill I'm going to die on. This is my Vashti moment. I'm going to give up my position in Congress for this decision. And here's what I want to say. Despite political party or the actual issues in play, we talk about that another time. We need more people who have the, enough values to say, if I, if I don't keep on in my position for this, fine. But I am not going to stand for this. And I'm willing to risk. I mean, wouldn't you love to see more politicians of all stripes stand for something and be willing to get voted out or not even be able to run because they said I'm willing to sacrifice my position for this I'm going to take a stand and then this week thinking about the Esther story I was thinking about Lindsey Krinks who we support as a church with her work as a street chaplain and in her book Praying With Our Feet which she released over the last couple of years in the first chapter she talks about the moment that was kind of her Esther moment, her Hadassah moment that kind of launched her into the life that she now leads. She was a senior in college just a few months from graduation, and she had long, since her childhood growing up in church, she had been interested in the plot of the poor, the marginalized, people that hurting. She was raised to be compassionate. But she says she realized most of the things she was working with were downstream type of things, people that were already poor, already in a tough spot. But she said... She started to feel called to upstream things to maybe help prevent people from ever ending up in that circumstance to begin with. The year was 2007, and the mayor of Nashville at the time had promised money for affordable housing in the budget, but when the budget was released, there was no money for it. Even though the mayor had promised money, but there was no money when the final budget came out. And so they were going to have an event to protest that. The mayor was in his last year of office, but yet was spooked enough that someone in his office called the college where Lindsay was at, called one of the administrators where Lindsay went to college, and she was summoned to the administrator's office. In a very condescending tone, chastised her and said, don't you know that protest never changes anything? Now, I'm certain that there have been protests that never changed anything, but I think we can be honest students of history and say protests have changed things so many times, right? She's very intimidated by that, but then gets back to her dorm room and gets a call from 
Charles Strobel, Room in the Inn founder, who Paul Spivey knows very, very well. He said, Lindsay, I heard there was going to be an event, and I, I would love to lead a prayer if you would have me. And she said in that moment with Charlie saying, I'll be there, and I'll lead a prayer. As I was thinking of it this week in connection with this, it was like he was the Mordecai to her Esther. And so they did the event. She spoke at the protest, and that was her moment 15 years ago that ushered her into a very different type of life. And she didn't. She was not unsafe that day. She didn't risk her life. She was not going to be killed that day. And yet it was a form of crucifixion because she gave up an easier path to take a harder path. I hope that none of us physically die, right? But yet I hope we're willing to allow ourselves to be crucified metaphorically, maybe literally if the time comes, but to lay down our lives. So before we sing, think about this. What have you given up? Because I know some of you have given up a great deal. You've given up an easier life. You've given up more time to relax and have recreation. You've given up an easier path. Maybe you've given up more money. Maybe you've given up more position. Maybe you've given up the affirmation of your parents or your friends or your family because God called you to something and in that moment you said, maybe I was put in this position for such a time as this. And if I perish, I perish. As our Lord himself said, not my will, but your will be done. This is the gospel and we are called to obey it. Let us stand together and sing. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free?
On the night before our Lord Jesus Christ was handed over to suffering and death, he took bread, and after he had blessed it, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take and eat, for this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup after supper, and after he had blessed it, he gave it to his disciples and said, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let us pray. Body of Christ, bread of heaven, feed us till we want no more. Have mercy on us and fill us with your life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us pray. Lord, may this be for us the blood of Christ and the cup of salvation. Fill us with your everlasting life. In the name of Christ.
to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. <coughs> Dear God, thank you so much for the, the hope that we have through your Son and, and his sacrifice for us. We're so thankful for this uh, family here at Ackland and the time that we've had to gather this morning together and to worship you. We ask you uh, to please go with us throughout this week and help us to be a light to those in our community. Sing our sons and we pray. church family. We're thankful that you guys are here this morning. Some birthdays this week. Boy, it is a busy birthday week this week. Uh, Brian and Rebecca on, what is that, Tuesday. Uh, Sabrina and Fran on Wednesday. Think about them. Uh, and then anniversaries this week. Uh, John and Sheila have a 20th anniversary this week, and Austin and Erica have a 5th anniversary, so happy anniversary. Um, Linda just let me know uh, an announcement that is not in the bulletin. Uh, Aaron's brother was diagnosed with cancer this week, and it is not treatable. Um, he is in hospice care, so please um, keep them in, in your prayers. Just lift, lift them up in um, I guess we'll get to today before we get to everything that is coming. This afternoon, 2.30, Couchville Lake, Halloween. Um, great rejoicing is had by all the children um, and maybe some of the adults. We are not cooking out this year. Uh, we'll have drinks, water, stuff like that. We'll have all the kayaks, all the canoes, paddles, life jackets, all those things. Um, if you have a life jacket that you prefer, um, if you have a camping chair, um, please bring those with you. If you type Couchville Lake uh, into your GPS of choice on your device of choice, um, it will take you in through Long Hunter State Park and you will find us. There is only one waterfront there. Um, for our Wednesday gathering this week, since something was going on at Plaza Mariachi on the Wednesday that we were planning on going during Mission Week and we got denied, um, we are going to meet there for dinner this week. Uh, so 6 o'clock on Wednesday, look forward to that. Um, for camp, you need the liability waiver. It needs to be notarized. Paul Spivey is on vacation this morning. He is not here with his notary form. Um, but uh, we just need those either turned into JP or at registration next Sunday. Um, looking forward a few weeks, Sabrina talked about the uh, camp cleanup on Saturday, August 6th for high school students and adults. Um, before that, on the 31st, we've got a Nashville Sounds game, two sporting events in one summer. I don't even know what is coming of this church, but we will look forward to that. Uh, let JP know if uh, you'd like to attend. Um, and then, uh, looking forward a couple weeks, uh, on August 7th, we're going to take up a, a special collection. We've been talking to Chris Lovingood, um, just helping out the situation in Ukraine. Um, 
JP will have more to say about sort of Ukrainians who are coming here. Many of you have already uh, offered support to them uh, versus people still left in Ukraine. And we're going to be taking up a, a collection uh, for the Ukrainian Education Center, uh, which we have supported for a long, long time. I, I saw Paul Prill here this morning. There he is in the back. Um, was on their board, uh, maybe is still on their board, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, we have a long, long history with them. So be thinking and praying about that on the 7th. Church, have I left anything out? Okay, well, we have coffee and donuts. You've been listening to 900 Ackland Avenue, the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. If you'd like more information about our community, our church website is http colon slash slash org. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.